Hello, and welcome to another episode of Stronger, Smarter Together. I'm Anne Stevenson, your City Council candidate for Ward O'Dayman. Today, I'm speaking with Carola Cunningham, who shares her insights on tackling homelessness and how we can all contribute to reconciliation. There are few people I admire more than Carola Cunningham. Carola is the CEO of Niganand Housing Ventures, an Indigenous-led organization dedicated to meeting the housing needs of Indigenous peoples living in Edmonton. Niganand's first housing development, Ambrose Place, is regarded as one of the most successful projects in addressing homelessness in our city. Niganand now operates numerous buildings that offer home, healing, and reconnection for some of Edmonton's hardest-to-house individuals. In the eight years I've had the privilege of working with Corolla, I've rarely walked away from an interaction without learning something new, and the following conversation was no exception. But before we delve in, I wanted to explain a few terms you'll hear Corolla and I use. When we talk about people being one, twos, threes, and fours, we're referring to what's known as an acuity scale. This is a way of describing different levels of support that people need to transition out of homelessness, with four being the highest, most intensive levels of supports. You'll also hear Corolla speaking about kokums and moshums. These are the Cree words for grandmas and grandpas. Without further ado, let's get started. For those folks listening that maybe don't know about Ambrose Place, could you tell us a bit more about about the work that happens there and then also how it's grown uh, through Niganan Housing Ventures? Sure. When we first opened the doors, we opened actually uh, sort of like a three-tier level. I made a conscious decision to have sober living on the top floor, and and the top floor was affordable living. Mm. So that was basically for people looking for a leg up that were were working and living a sober lifestyle, um, but needed help. And then, so uh, if we looked at our bottom floor on the second floor, it was wet. So those were the people that were chronically uh, practicing their addictions and had all kinds of phys med needs and mental health issues. And then the, the third floor was damp. So those were people <laughs> that were drinking but not every day or drugging but not every day but it was still a problem in their lives and they still needed supports with their med needs and the mental health issues that worked really well because the affordable people that were living sober lives had already come from that place of probably practicing at a wet level and had progressively moved up into sober living and so they were mentors to the people below them in the progression of moving those people that were in uh, the wet and um, damp floors. Uh, we had people cascading out into marketable housing. It's unbelievable how many people need permanent supportive housing with wraparound supports that we have at Ambrose Air. And so um, I made a conscious decision and went to the board and said, look, we need to make this entire building permanent supportive housing. Mm -hmm. And so although we still try to do wet, damp, dry, it's not as successful as uh, affordable living Mm. in the area. 
because it's more like wet, damp, damp. Right. <laughs> but, but it still has that concept. And I still uh, encourage and aspire to uh, motivate people to live on the fourth floor because uh, there is a certain prestige that goes with the fact mm. that you're on the fourth floor. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, in speaking, I mean, you've spoken about sort of needing to uh, repurpose um, Ambrose so that it was sort of all permanent supportive housing. And what can you talk about some of the other um, housing opportunities that you've opened up? So um, some of your PDD housing and then, of course, most recently, uh, the Sands Bridge housing. Yeah, well, I, I know and you know that I've been talking about bridge housing long before it was a thing. And uh, and the reason I talked about it was that we really needed that transitional period for people coming directly off the street. And if we had that ability to take people off the street and have them assessed, uh, diagnosed, put on proper medication, we could then make a better call on where they actually needed to be housed. And um, so we're, we're doing that at the Sands and we're doing amazing work there. Yeah. Just, I'm just so proud of the staff there. Like mm. they really take their job seriously and they've helped with breaking down encampments and housing people. Uh, we have a great relationship with the Elmwood community. They, they have no problem phoning us and saying, hey, we have somebody in the park. He's kind of causing a problem. And our staff goes over and, and straightens things out. Yeah. So that piece of bridge housing is so key to to the whole continuum of housing really because it's it's level one two three and four all together right yeah yeah well that's such a good point too that by by sort of stabilizing people you can assess them so much more effectively so that you know someone at a level one or two isn't taking up a, a room at three or four which is just so much more resource intensive and, and, and that's really true because you would you can take a person right off the street that that's looking like a level three or a level four, mm -hmm. which is actually once you get all of those other things in place, levels out at a at a one or a two. Yeah. And yeah. that's that saves the system a whole bunch of money. Totally. Yeah. Oh, it's so incredible. And, and then, of course, um, your the housing that you've been doing for individuals with personal development disabilities um, just seems like a really great model. If you could share a bit about that as well. Right. We found that here at Ambrose, although I designated um, six units for PDD, um, we found that people with PDD often had really high mental health issues mm. and um, they were on so high level of drugs that the, the combination of their drug need and then being involved with people that were actively using caused all kinds of problems for them, mm. for us. And so uh, I said, you know what? I think these, these uh, people with PDD status would do way better in smaller settings with the wraparound support and they're less likely to be engaged in addictive behavior as we see it at Ambrose. And so that was a pretty good call on my part, I got to say, because <laughs> it, it really worked out really well for the people that are being housed. And it's really nice that they 
it's really like a home, seriously. Like they're so involved, like a regular home that the staff have become the aunties and uncles. And, mm. and you know, Lorette, our, our cookum is truly their cookum when she goes over there. And she uh, really understands that PDD group. And she's so patient and calm with them. And even when she takes them to the sweat, like, you know, when you go with regular people, it's uncustomary to open the door mid round. However, she has such an ability to understand these people that she is so flexible and opens it and lets them do what they need to do and starts over. And it's made a huge difference in those people's lives. And, you know, I was just telling staff the other day, um, you know, we're, we're headed into our seventh year in November which is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when I went to ceremonies this year at our chicken dance, we had over 20 residents attend. And so that means there were five people coming from the PDD homes. Um, there were quite a few people coming from Omamu and Gugamik, but there were the most people were coming from Ambrose Place. So what that told me is the, the longer we're here, and that the harder we work with our individuals, the more we invite them to ceremony, the bigger changes start to happen. That's fascinating. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, we've spoken in the past and you've shared with me sort of the, the real importance. So, you know, a sense of homelessness isn't just about having a roof overhead. Of course, it's the supports, but it's also the community and, and that uh, connection to to others in community and also ceremony as well. And so, you know, one of the, one of the initiatives I'm, I'm most excited about uh, is of course, um, All My Relations House, which I'm still uh, still learning how to pronounce. But I'd love to, to hear you talk more uh, and share more about just what an incredible vision you've built there. So the plan was that we would take six youth coming out of care because we, as I follow statistics, I realize that the youth coming out of foster care, especially with me- any mental health or addiction disorder, um, within three months, they were homeless. Mm. And if you follow them further, within another three to six months, they were incarcerated in jail. Mm. And so all those kids were spiraling down and would eventually land in Ambrose. Mm. And that's not what we want to see. Yeah. So I said, well, how about we take youth and we create a program that wraps around with Kokum and Mushroom support and teaches them their roles as Oskapiosuk. So Oskapiosuks are helpers that we call them that in the community and in our ceremonies. Well, and for me, you know, I think I think the work you're doing to keep uh, families together um, is so exceptional. So I think you've shared that, you know, at least two families have had um, sort of supervision orders lifted since they've moved in uh, to the building. And it just seems like you're doing such a phenomenal job of addressing those uh, just like key pivot points, right? Like if those kids aging out of care don't get that support right away, then again, not not that they're they're lost forever, but, but it's a huge loss for them personally, years they might lose. Um, and then we as a society just miss their potential, miss their contributions and end up, you know, needing to build more permanent supportive housing. Um, 
Yeah. I just think if this works with the people that we're dealing with, so we are dealing with people with mental health issues and it works with them. I just think about, you know, um, our kids that have been traumatized by being placed in foster care. Mm-hmm. They often follow the same suit. It takes them a bit longer, but they often follow the same suit. And if we can move all kids in that direction, um, we're going to shut down some systems. That's my hope. Yeah. And <laughs> when, I, when I look at our new families that are at uh, Omamo Wangugamik, um, you're right. We've had kid uh, families come in with uh, a family enhancement order that if they don't get uh, all their ducks in a row and they don't abide by the terms of the placement order that they're going to lose their kids to care. And since we've been open, three of those enhancement orders have been lifted. Like our cookums are feeling so happy to be involved in families' lives, right? They Mm -hmm. want to continue to give to the community. Mm -hmm. And they do just in simple little ways, like making somebody bannock and stew and taking it over and sitting down and and just having a conversation like a kokomod with their granddaughter and talking about, you know, simple little things like you got to teach your child when they get up, that they wash their face and they make their beds because it tells their spirit, come on, get up, clean up, be bright for creator, Mm. keep everything clean and creator will keep your life clean. Mm -hmm. And so that's just a little basic teaching that all those cookums are providing our live-in families. We have smudging every day on the fifth floor. Um, We have a community kitchen where we we all bring our crock pots and we learn to make one dish meals. We have every Friday, we have a community dinner when we all come together and we eat together and people learn how to how to make different foods just by interacting that day. A lot of amazing things are morphing out of that. And I'm, I'm really into organic growth. And, and mm-hmm. that's how I uh, have encouraged all our sites, like go where the Go where the tenant wants to take you. What are they telling you they need? What does it look like would work? And so, like, I mean, we have AA, we have Wellbriety, and we have NA. And that's all come from the need from the tenant. So it's amazing what can happen when you pull together, create community, and allow people to feel safe. And not only do they feel safe, but they start to learn a sense of responsibility towards the rest of the community. You know, I think often when we when we talk about reconciliation, it can seem sort of abstract or really, really intangible. People can't get a grasp on it. And, and what I love so much about your work is it's, for me, just sort of reconciliation in action. You know, it's a really big question, but, you know, what does reconciliation mean to you and, and how do you look at it um, in your work? Yeah, that is a big question. But to me, Reconciling is to give back and create normalcy for our people. Mm -hmm. And so for a long time, I know you know our medicine wheel, and each family sits in that wheel. So the white family, the blue family, the yellow family, and the red family. And forever, such a long time, the red family has been displaced. Mm -hmm. It hasn't been equal. The wheel has always been off balance. 
And I think through initiatives like we provide, it's lifting up our people to take ownership of a forever home and work within a community that makes sense to them. So never before a lot of the families at our house have had an opportunity just to go and pick sage for the day because they don't have a vehicle. They don't have anybody that can take them. It's not that they don't want to, they just don't have opportunity. Mm. And that's our life. That's where we come from. We need our medicines for the, for the year to come through winter and fall. And so for them to be able to go and gather and you go into their house and you can see their medicines drying and you see their smudge pans, then you know that they're starting to revert back to who they are. And that's a part of decolonization. And when we're given the opportunity to decolonize, then we're starting to reconcile. What's wonderful is that Niganan Housing Ventures is an Indigenous-led organization, and so you have the autonomy. Um, you know, I, I know there are funding agreements and, and requirements um, that, that you need to meet, but you have really been given the freedom to shape your own programs, um, and it's been wildly successful. Like, I think that, that that's such an important message for people to hear, and, you know, it's interesting with, with the decolonization process. So, you know, other folks listening won't know this, but, you know, our organizations, Right at Home Housing and, and Niganet Housing Ventures, you know, have a really, a really special relationship, I think. And something that was so important for Right at Home and on, on the board that we kind of had to work through was coming to a 50-50 partnership um, for all my relations home. And I think that was, again, it maybe seems like a small piece. Like for, for me, I think I just more and more see reconciliation being about changing those power structures and, and as settlers giving away this power that we've held. I think part of the re- rationale behind that is that right at home, although um, they have ownership of a lot of property, their, their bias behind it is to house people. Mm. And that it's not about how much money you make. It's actually actively housing people that probably couldn't be housed in some other uh, marketable housing initiatives. And um, when you're already coming from that standpoint, it makes it easier to work with an Indigenous group because in our communities, it's the, the most important person is not the guy with two pickups in his yard and a huge house. Mm-hmm. That is not the most important person in in our community. The person that walks that road of kindness, of honesty, and sharing that Mm. shows how determined and strong they are to live as a Nihiwak and walk their path that creator intended. And so people look up to that person Mm. and say, I want what that person has because that person is start has really good balance in their lives. It isn't about getting more. It's about living with what we have in balance with all our relatives. And when mm-hmm. I speak of all our relatives, I'm not just talking about our two-legged relatives. I'm talking about the air, the water, the earth, and all our four-legged and winged ones. Lots of uh, other cultures believe this too, but I think um, capitalism (laughs) has created 
a different uh, venue. And so when we're put in a place where that is active, everybody strives to do that because they think it's right. And in the end, we have a lot of unhappy people. So when we go back to our way as Indigenous people and really embrace what we were given, all the other things start to fall in place. Mm -hmm. You get a job and you have a house and you have a car, right? It's a, it's a byproduct rather than the goal. Exactly. Um, yeah. Exactly. Well, and you know, and you really touch on, I think something so important as well is that I think when we talk about reconciliation, it's often thought about as, um, you know, for, for the benefit of the Indigenous uh, people, when really I think as settlers and, and new Canadians, we just have so much to learn. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, you talked about, I mean, I, I have so much admiration for you and I, I, have learned so much from you. And I think there's so much applicability. Yeah, we, we all just have so much to benefit from reconciliation and, and so much that we've lost as a society, I think, um, in in the past. I think you bring a really good point that, it, it, that I think we're at that place where settlers need to do some of the heavy lifting. Mm-hmm. Like, um, it has always been our path to continually try to educate uh, the non-Indigenous communities about why we're here, what, what we believe, and how we understand we should be living here on Mother Earth, right? And for ever such a long time, that whole thought of getting ahead was more important than human beings. People are starting to listen. Mm. And I think as hard as it is to talk about all of the bodies that are being found, with residential school survivors, I think um, that's really woken up a lot of Canadians, Euro Canadians. So many people uh, coming from that conservative mentality is like, get over it, get on with it, quit your damn crying. Mm -hmm. But now here's the reality, people. You have been part of the genocide of Indigenous people of Turtle Island. And these bodies and the count is well past 5,000 now, and it's going to continue to grow. And how do you ignore that? Like, how do you continue to ignore all of the things that have happened to our people and even recognize that our people have been resilient enough to survive it all? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We've talked in the past sort of about some of the systemic racism that even when we're talking about residential schools, it's such an important conversation, but it is sometimes relegated to the past. Um, There's not conversation of sort of some of the ongoing challenges uh, with the family and child welfare system. And then, yeah, just systemic racism that uh, that Indigenous individuals and, and organizations face. And again, I think sometimes people find it hard to, to understand what that looks like. Uh, and just wondering if you can you can help to articulate how how that looks and, and what your experience of it has been. Yeah, that's a huge one because I mean, if you look at all the all of the systems, who are the highest people filling those systems? Mm-hmm. Like when we look at child welfare, we're three percent of the population, and yet the count for children in care is like 87% in Alberta, 96 in Saskatchewan. Like those are unbelievable numbers. 
the fact that we're trying to do something different at Omama Wangugamik tells me that the government has to pay attention. Mm. We're prepared as an Indigenous community of employees to work at changing how children in care are, are, are placed. And so we're saying, okay, if a, if a parent goes sideways, why does the child have to be removed from a community that loves them, that speaks their language, that practices their culture? Why can't we become kinship care? Mm. And that's what we're striving for over there is that if the parents have to leave because they're the ones causing the problem by their behaviors, then leave the kids with us and we'll support them and they'll never have to not understand who they are mm. and their parents can work to come back home to their children as opposed to a child being ripped from their parents and never, ever trying to get back to their parents in any shape or form. I think that that's a huge thing in itself. And if government is willing to look at doing business differently with us, I think we have a solution here. In lots of ways, if you look at even like at corrections, I know it's a microcosm. I look at what we did at Stan Daniels and how it continues to thrive through Native counselling. Um, and it's because we brought their culture back to them and we allowed them to start making decisions about their lives and put ownership back in their hands. Because for so long, Indigenous people have been so paternalized. Like, yeah. I mean, when you look at the reserve uh, system, like they were literally placed on there and the Indian agent became the father and would decide whether you got that sack of flour and the bag of rice and the sugar and where your kids were going. And like where you could go. Yeah. Where, yeah. You couldn't even cross the field to shoot a duck if you didn't have a pass, right? Yeah. The bigger system has imprisoned the people of the land for how many years? And then again, we hear, get over it. We pay this. We give you money. Well, that isn't true. All the money that the queen said a certain amount of money will go into this place, Indian Affairs has, they, the government spends that money, the interest on that money. There's billions of dollars there, and it doesn't come from the taxpayers at mm -hmm. all. Mm -hmm. You need to know the whole story. Yeah. And then, and then maybe we can all start working together. Yeah. Let us be the people we were meant to be. Mm. Right? Yeah, absolutely. There's a place for settler allies. Like, and like, think about the work we've done together. Like, I couldn't have done it without your help. It just makes my life that much less complicated, less headaches. I know I got somebody, I got an ally. I can rely on them. And if I don't have the right words and I can't articulate it, you can. And you understand what I'm trying to say. That make that opens doors for me, right? It is, it is just my greatest honor to be able to do anything to help help the work you do because it's the most important work that's happening and we all benefit from it. A question on my mind, of course, is, you know, what, what can city council do? What do you need from the city? And, you know, I think often we talk about sort of building capacity in organizations and I've really started like disliking that term because you have so much capacity, you have more capacity 
than, than countless other organizations. Um, but what you have are roadblocks and regulatory barriers and bureaucracy. And, and so it's not about building your capacity. It's about breaking down those barriers and changing those systems. You know, that's what I think we need to be striving towards, not... Or wouldn't it be great if some of these people that want to hand out money come and talk to me and say, what do you need money for? Right. Right. I need money to buy a piece of property, land. I need land. Land heals our people. Well, well, people don't understand that, but I understand it. And that's how I build capacity with my people. Mm-hmm. Give me land and, and you'll see some more amazing changes, right? And I think we have we have to let people hear us and we need to be able to voice what we need and that we can do it differently and do a better job. Yeah. And I think I I think Ambrose, I think Nikanan has literally shown that we can take the absolutely hardest to house. Nobody wants them. Mm-hmm. The rest of society would call them throwaway people and walk over their bodies on the sidewalk. And they become functioning, contributing members of the world. Mm-hmm. Like what? And we're saving money. I was going to say, and we're saving. I mean, it's like, it's always terrible to put it in that term. But, you know, if people aren't, you know, convinced by giving people this, this opportunity to, to be themselves and be connected and be in community. But yeah, it, it's the money. Like it is so much savings. It is so expensive to keep people unhoused and unconnected. Oh, yeah. Well, look at what, what, what I just was looking at one of the cases that we took here. And so he was a fellow that had lost both his legs and bound to a wheelchair. And when we when he, he when he was sent to us, he had been um, panhandling and getting into all kinds of difficulty. And so we we took him here at Ambrose because no one else would take him because of his behaviors. And one of his ventures, he had hit his head and it caused another break in one of his um, discs. Mm. And so he was in the hospital and they said, well, if he did his therapy, his physiotherapy, he might be able to get back in his wheelchair. But presently, yeah, no, he's going to be in the hospital bed for the rest of his life because we can't get him to go to physiotherapy. Mm. So I made a decision because he's a stubborn guy. (laughs) He doesn't care for other cultures. So I sent one of our people and said, okay, tell him that I'm willing to bring him home if he gets busy with his physiotherapy. So he did. The staff went with him to physiotherapy. They got him going. They they got him to where he he was starting to function pretty good. And I said, okay, we'll bring him home. But and then I went to you know we have a great relationship with Alberta Health Services, and um, they agreed to give me an extra healthcare aid so I could get him into shape. And so one of the motivators was if you can start to move your glass like this because he couldn't use. He couldn't transfer his body, he couldn't do mm. anything. So we were basically feeding him and, and trying to get him to work his muscles. So I said, if you can do this, I'll give you a beer. <laughs> that was the best thing. Pretty soon he was feeding himself, working himself. Pretty soon he could use his sass pole to transfer Amazing. onto his bed from his wheelchair. When I did a cost study, if he had a remained 
picture just during the time that we we um we did all that therapy with them and got them moving again mm-hmm. so it worked out to about seven or eight months of like hard work um if he had a stayed housed in hospital bed an, oh. a non-medical hospital bed it would have cost 12 million dollars oh my god what what Oh my God! You know how much it costs to stay at at Nigan at Amber's place? One hundred and sixty three dollars a day. <laughs> right, right. Oh, I know, I know. Well, and you know, and this is, I mean, this is what's so so confounding is that even even if you know we take this really colonial settler mindset of oh everything is evidence based and linear and blah blah blah, it's like it's still there. It still makes sense. It makes sense from every perspective. And it's, it's so shocking to me that the system has been so resistant to these outside ideas. I don't think it's just one thing. Mm-hmm. It's a combination of all those things and the inability to work outside the box and not get caught up in policy and procedure mm-hmm. and look at humans as humans and be flexible enough to change according to who you're working with. Like there isn't a set pattern for every person. Something that works good with Joe doesn't work good with John. And so be flexible. Yeah. What are some concrete steps that you would, you would tell folks that they can take uh, to support reconciliation in our community? Uh, don't be scared to make eye contact. Don't be say to say good morning or hello. And I, I, I'm not saying that the response will always be good, but the majority of our people, if they've been raised the way I understand they've been raised, will just be blown away that you've made eye contact and said good morning. And they are no longer invisible. And mm-hmm. they become part of the rest of the fabric of of society like so many of our people walk around on the streets and are not even acknowledged Mm -hmm. and um, when somebody is finally acknowledged that starts to give them a little bit more purpose and they start to maybe come to that place where they can make good choices in their lives i mean it sounds very simple but you got to start somewhere right the fact that you become uninvisible <laughs> shifts how how you see the world and yourself in it oh well it's it's beautiful advice it's heartbreaking advice um that that we're not even doing those basic things right now um but but a great call to action mm-hmm. thank you corolla you're welcome man it was great to talk to you oh, such a pleasure Stronger, Smarter Together is produced and edited by Bryn Bratton-Wall. Music is by Chloe Alpert and artwork by Joanne Pierce. A huge thank you to Corolla Cunningham for joining me. You can learn more about the great work of Niganan Housing Ventures at niganan.ca. Thank you all for listening and please visit annstevenson.ca for more information about how you can help build our communities stronger, smarter, together. <laughs>